From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Right now, though, a court ruling that is getting a lot of attention, and already the Trudeau government has announced it plans to appeal a federal court ruling that found its use of the Emergencies Act during the trucker convoy violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Justice Richard G. Mosley wrote in his opinion, the declaration was unreasonable and it was outside the scope of the law. Now, we've already heard from Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland defending the government's use of that act. We worked very, very hard with all levels of government and we were very mindful of acting in such a way that the safety, the physical safety of all Canadians involved would be preserved. The court case was brought forward by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And joining me now is Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Josh, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Uh, We'll talk a bit about the appeal, but take us back, if you can, and the arguments that were used that clearly the judge in this case, Justice Richard G. Mosley, agreed with. What were the arguments that were put forward as to why this was not okay, that it did violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Yeah, so there were a few arguments that we made, and uh, basically all of them were accepted. So, First of all, the decision to invoke the act. Um, This is an act of absolute last resort, and there's lots of safeguards written into the act to make sure that governments don't use it to, you know, violate our civil liberties when it's not an extremely serious situation. And so, you know, we argued that a couple of requirements from the text of the act weren't met. Like, you know, first of all, the act quite clearly states that it can only, there can only be an emergency where, um, the the situation can't be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. You know, this is the sort of last resort clause. And Justice Mosley agreed with us that in this case, the, um, the situation could be dealt with under other laws. For example, the Criminal Code of Canada, which was used to clear blockades in Windsor and in Coots, Alberta, the day before the act was was invoked and in in the end they actually used the the same plan they had planned to use all along to clear the ottawa blockade and then the second reason that it wasn't you know a reasonable decision based on the text of the act um, had to do with the requirement that there are threats to the security of canada and so this means things like you know threats of like really serious violence against uh, persons or property, but what the government was saying was that this was, you know, economic harm, and they were concerned about uh, supply chains and things like that. And Justice Mosley said, you know, that just does not cut it. Uh, economic disruption does not count as, you know, a threat of serious violence against persons or property. And so, those were the two main arguments. And then, in terms of what was unconstitutional, it was uh, the fact that, you know, they they banned uh, support for. Um, for for expression across the country if it was going to, you know, contribute to a potential breach of the peace. And what was happening was happening in Ottawa. So this was overbroad, according to the judge. Um, and also your right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure under the charter was, was violated because the act told banks that they should uh, search people if they had any reason to believe they're supporting these protests, and that is a, a warrantless search. And 
there just was not good enough justification for that. And 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 so what what you just touched on there, because I think that was part of it that really did get a lot of attention and and people were questioning, and that was the freezing of the bank accounts and people seeing that happen to their bank accounts when they were even accused of supporting this. Yeah, so this was this was a big problem. So in the end, what happened was they froze about two hundred and ninety bank accounts, which was quite serious. Uh, these were people involved in the convoy protest in Ottawa, but it also impacted their families, right? Their joint bank accounts that got frozen, things like that. And the issue here was uh, the Emergency Act measures told banks that they can freeze bank accounts if they have any reason to believe that the money is being held on behalf of somebody somebody participating in a so-called unlawful assembly. And that is just such a low standard, this, you know, a reason to believe standard, and it just doesn't sort of cut muster with what's required by the Charter. Does it also, did it come into play, or, or was it part of the argument that the the so-called freedom convoy, this wasn't something that was impacting all Canadians? It was certainly something I think a lot of people were paying attention to, and if you were in Ottawa or if you were at some of the other points where protests were taking place, you could probably hear it or you saw it. But there was also such a difference of uh, in the way that it was, uh, especially in the Ottawa one, in the way that it was described. And maybe that was the difference of what was happening during the night and happening during the day. But was it also an issue that because this wasn't impacting all Canadians, it was perceived in a different way by by different people? Yeah, no doubt. Um, certainly the biggest impact was in Ottawa. And that's actually really important to, you know, the justification of the law as the act is written, because it has to be a national emergency. And according to the judge and, uh, you know, we agree this was at best an emergency only in Ontario, and it was an emergency that was sort of wrapping up in Ontario at that time um, that this was invoked back on Valentine's Day of uh, 2022. And when you talked about, too, that the, the, they needed to prove that it was a national emergency, that it did put Canadians in danger, was part of this also, I don't know if the judge touched on this, but the fact that they were able to use police forces, they were able to use law enforcement, they were able to use the tools that are used for anything that is unlawful for any kind of protest or sit-in or or something like that, that they didn't need the extreme measures, they didn't need the powers that came with the Emergencies Act? Yeah, actually, that's, that's sort of the most important uh, takeaway here is, you know, people might argue that police moved a little bit slowly in, in Ottawa dealing with some of the disorder related to the protests, but, you know, they had a plan um, in place to to deal with the some of the, the more concerning parts of that protest. And that was the plan that they, they eventually ended up executing. And I think, um, you know, for example, the head of the OPP in Ontario, he testified at the Emergencies Commission that um, he didn't think this was necessary necessarily necessary and a lot of the officials said basically you know these measures like the freezing of the bank accounts and the banning on protest you know i guess they were sort of helpful but we didn't really need them to to do our job and so that's sort of the key takeaway here is if you're going to suspend civil liberties it should really only be in those cases where it's absolutely necessary and uh used only as a last resort
And even going back to the testimony about this and when the Prime Minister was asked about the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and uh, he said that Cabinet made that decision and based that decision on the definition of threats to the security of Canada and that they had legal opinion that led them to make that decision but then didn't offer up that legal opinion or make it public, it, it seems like that was quite a weak argument, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I I I agree, and I think that was also really important to this this finding here. So, you know, the the text of the act says says that threats of security of the can threats to the security of Canada are defined in another act called the CSIS Act. And what you had at the time of the invocation decision was the director of CSIS, David Vigneault, He was saying at that time he didn't think that the the threshold under that act, which he deals with all the time, was met. And then, you know, the prime minister and cabinet are saying, well, we have a legal opinion that says we can interpret this differently, but nobody ever really told us what that was. And I think, you know, Canadians deserve to know what that, that legal opinion was, but um, the prime minister and cabinet chose, chose not to share it. So this is a federal court of Canada ruling, again, finding that the invoking of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable and that it violated charter rights. We've heard as it played off the top from the deputy prime minister saying they are already planning to appeal this ruling. So where does it go from here? Yeah, so it'll go next to the the, the federal court, uh, the, the federal court of Canada's appeal, appeal court and, uh, They'll take another look and we'll be there um, fighting, fighting the government again. So uh, something to look forward to. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Josh. I know it's a busy day for you. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Lots of questions about the ongoing transit strike in Metro Vancouver and what it's going to look like come Thursday, Friday of this week, with buses supposed to be back running and CBUS back running tomorrow. Well, the BC food and beverage industry is also calling for a swift resolution to the transit strike, as this strike has had a significant impact on the local economy, specifically when we're talking about the food and beverage production industry. And James Donaldson joins us now, CEO of BC Food and Beverage. James, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Jill. How does this industry or how is this industry being impacted by the ongoing transit strike? Well, you know, it's industry. It's very interesting. The the food industry is actually a $13 billion um, industry here in BC, and it employs over 40,000 people, and many of whom uh, rely heavily upon transit. One of our members, uh, was, I happened to be at their facility yesterday, 90% of their staff actually use public transit to get to work. So you can imagine the disruption that is for production shifts and, and to be able to kind of main, maintain their operations. Uh, so companies have had to scramble. There's been no warning um, really that it was coming. As, so it was even difficult for companies to have time to build contingencies. And of course, I know it's a 48-hour strike, so hopefully they'll, they'll stick to that. But, you know, the, the disruption in a 48-hour window is significant, and it really shows, you know, anything longer than that would be uh, potentially devastating for the food supply, for, you know, for, for putting food on the table of British Columbians. Are people finding different ways to get to work, or are you hearing that in many cases workers simply aren't getting there? Yeah, we, we've heard a few different things. We'd, we'd, uh, when we issued a, the news release yesterday, we'd actually encouraged our members to reach out to us to, to you know, let articulate the disruption, but also to kind of share any best practices that they're doing. And, 
you know, we talked to one this morning that's, that has several hundred employees coming in for their shift, and they're fortunate that they're close to a SkyTrain because that was still operating, but uh, they had to use Uber to, to get their staff from the SkyTrain to their facility. Uh, so obviously, that's not a sustainable uh, model, but there was, you know, so, uh, some good interim measures, but they were still short-staffed by 20%. Uh, and, and, you know, staff and, and companies are trying to work together to, to do carpooling and ride sharing. But with very little time to kind of turn those things around, you're not going to get, you know, all the staff in. So the, the, the larger the company, the, the more risk they're at. And I know, again, it is called BC Food and Beverage. But what specific workers or, or what types of things and, and jobs are being impacted the most? Sure. Well, a lot of it's production. So, you know, whether you're a, a bakery or a brewery or, you know, making a, a plant-based product or a meat product, uh, you know, our membership represents sort of the full span of, of large to small uh, uh, companies that, that make all sorts of categories in, in the industry. Um, a lot of it's the, the really the most heavily impacted areas on the production side. So, uh, you know, most companies, 80 or 90 percent of their staff are going to be dedicated to production. So if you only have half your production staff come in, you, you won't even be able to manufacture half of what you're supposed to. Sometimes it might only be a fraction of that or you can't operate at all because everyone has specialized roles. It's not like they're all uh, they're all transferable skills where they, anyone can do any part of their production. So it's it's incredibly disruptive to have a you know 20 percent uh, shortfall like one of our staff members had. But, you know, the one yesterday couldn't do any production because they were short by 80 or 90 percent of their staff. So it's 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 very heavily to that, but but you know, in typical office staff, you know, um, administration, accounting, uh, marketing, and sales, uh, human resources, all, all the office positions. Many of them use public transport as well. And is it something that people will see the impact of this? Uh, that the public will see the impact of this, or or is it something that might take a while before that's noticed? Yeah, I think it'll take a while, uh, Jill. It, 48 hours is, is not a long period of time. It's incredibly disruptive, uh, you know, in the short term, but there will be inventories and things like that where adjustments can be made. Anything longer than that, though, you really start to run into to problems because the, the supply chain, you know, it's, we've gone through a lot of disruption already through our supply chain during COVID and during the flood crisis here in BC. So, our, you know, our industry is used to being resilient, but these sort of sustained disruptions are really hard to, to come back from. And, and companies that are busy do, doing production on a daily basis, they don't really have any way of making up that. So they're, you know, they end up being shorting orders to customers and less product on the shelf. So in a 48 hour window, I don't anticipate that to, to be very disruptive, but anything more than that's going to be very significant. And, and even worse if, if SkyTrain also is, uh, was not available, which it is right now. Right. And are we talking about shift work and, and workers as well that are going in and or maybe working shifts that are that are odd times? So even if you, you can find kind of that alternate, it's difficult. It is. You know, and that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, we do have companies that run two shifts and sometimes even three shifts a day. So it, it's hard enough to get people sort of during your sort of Peak, uh, peak transport hours, but after hours and, and late shifts um, are become very difficult. So a lot of those companies would have to be shorting, you know, shorting some of those shifts and going with one or two shifts a day and just trying to see if they could get everybody to come in to work uh, fewer shifts just to try and optimize their production just to keep things going. I, I asked that also because uh, we were talking to somebody yesterday who went to the Surrey Central bus depot, which is an extremely busy depot for anybody uh, that's been there would know that. But he was yeah. talking to people who were getting, uh, were waiting, didn't realize that the buses has, uh, had actually stopped before that 3 a.m. cutoff and were trying to get night buses. And that and, and he even said anecdotally, it seemed like it was a lot of people who were going to work. And, and I would imagine in that scenario, I mean, uh, unless you pay a lot of money for an Uber, 
Uber or a taxi, you you would find it very difficult to get to work for your shift. It's difficult or impossible. And remember, this is on the heels of a snowstorm where it was difficult enough for people to get into work and there was already disruption. So it's a sort of a, almost extending out some of the problems that we experienced since late last week. And and it's very difficult. And, you know, the thing is, the, the food industry and, and healthcare and other important sectors are, are an essential service. And you know, what we'd like to see, well, one, we'd like to see both parties get back to the negotiating table and, and, and maintain operations. I don't think anything's served by disrupting, you know, the, the economy the way it has been. But but also, uh, you know, so many British Columbians rely on, on transportation on a daily basis, not just in our industry, but in others. And, and I, I think public transport should be an essential service as well. Right, because and I and I think you made this point as well in the release that went out was that the people, a lot of the people that we're talking about here, the jobs that we're talking about are essential services. This is food, and this is beverage, and this is these are things that people need. Absolutely, and you know, I always kind of say I, I think one thing the pandemic taught us is that you know I think people people don't kind of take for granted where food comes from a lot of the time, and there's certainly a lot of work and a lot of dedicated people that go behind. Uh, behind making it. And, and yeah, that's some of the challenges you had when there was empty store shelves. Everyone was sort of panicked and realized that. But at the beginning of the pandemic, the food industry wasn't even an essential service. We actually had to advocate for that because even PPE and masks and, and hand sanitizers and gloves that all food production companies use as part of their uh, part of their manufacturing practice, they didn't even have access to it because it was dedicated for essential services. So, you know, that 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 it's supposed to mean something, and we, we'd like to see that mean more than it does currently. Even if it was, say, an essential service, if there was a declaration, although it doesn't sound like that's something that the B.C. government is going to do, at least not in the short term, if it was a reduced service or there was some level that was maintained through an essential service, would that be make enough of a difference? Well, it's hard to say. It would really depend on the scale of, of, of what sort of restrictions they'd be putting in place. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, the best the best way to get the result you want is to keep talking, to keep things moving and, and to uh, and to operate in good faith. And, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, strikes are, are a way of, of getting people's attention and drawing attention to it. But, you know, this is the wrong type of impact on on uh, on British Columbians, I think. And and certainly when it starts to put the food supply at potential risk, you know, that's, that's something that I don't think people should stand for. So, so I, I don't know what the simple solution is, but like, as I said, I think, you know, getting, I think in 2022, the statistic I read was that 325 million users of, of transit throughout BC and, and, and that's like, that's a significant number. So I, I think that that's, there's enough usage of it from enough people that it should be essential. So, so we're hoping that they, it, maybe it doesn't need to come to that. But if, if the disruptions continue, I, I don't really see what options, uh, other practical options would exist. And will it be cumulative, do you think, as far as if these production companies, um, if workers, if they're operating 20% down because workers simply can't get there, is it going to be, again, something if we don't, we might not see the impacts right away, but down the road, will the, will they kind of pile on one after another? Yeah, I mean that there is definitely a compounding effect. We we definitely saw that during the you know the the atmospheric river crisis in 2021, where um, you know it wasn't just outbound products that were restricted as inbound ingredients. So it's not like all the food was sort of trapped in the Lower Mainland. Actually, a lot of the ingredients needed to make it couldn't get in as well. So there was uh, shortages and and uh, stock shortages and things like that. So so it is a compounding effect. And same thing with the port strike. There was you know a restriction of inbound ingredients and and a lot of supply was disrupted and. 
the, the, the supply chain is a fragile one. And, and you know, we've, we've learned our lessons through a couple of these different major disruptions that, you know, we really need to insulate our supply chain and protect it. So, and production is just such a key part of that. So, um, yeah, so we're really hoping that these disruptions, you know, the, the compounding effect doesn't happen and they can just kind of get back to the, the negotiating table and get back to work. We will be watching uh, to see what happens next for sure. James Donaldson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me again. I much appreciate it, Jill. This is something that you've maybe heard in the news. It has to do with a new scam that is emerging and taking advantage of what has become a very popular weight loss drug, Ozempic, or at least a drug that is used for weight loss. Well, joining me now is Simone Liss, president and CEO of the Better Business Bureau. Simone, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be here. I think it's a a really important topic for us to, to talk about. Well, and luckily, it hasn't got to to the stage where this is happening all the time. So good that you're able to warn people about this. Now, there was one case from late 2023 that involved a woman in Ontario. So what happened here? Well, we had a consumer who thought she had purchased Ozempic from a legitimate source. Uh, She found it through Facebook, um, sent them $280 and then was told that she needed to pay another $120 in order for them to ship it to her. At that point, she started asking for her money back. And unfortunately, she didn't get her money back and realized it was a scam. So she reached out to us instead. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen a few reports, not just from Canada, but also from the United States as well, um, with a similar type of report. And so that just highlights that this is really something that is emerging, especially with this this shortage and um, with this awareness that this drug, is, which is treated for type 2 diabetes, might have some other benefits that people are, are constantly focused on. Uh, when you say, though, she thought she was buying Ozempic from a legitimate source, I mean, shouldn't the first red flag have been that you're buying a prescription drug from somebody on Facebook? Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we are working to try to help educate people, that's one of the key messages that we have. I mean, never, ever buy a prescription from someone you don't know that you haven't vetted. I mean, you can come to us, you can come to the uh, the uh, provincial bodies and make sure that they're a registered, licensed um, pharmacy. But I also think that, I mean, in Canada, Ozempic isn't really officially approved for treatment of weight loss, although many people are... Um, uh, you know, I think that's uh, that people are, are thinking of it for that. It's it's really been approved to treat type 2 diabetes. Um, and so this high demand as a result of this side effect is potentially leading people to look for other ways of getting the prescription. Right. And so, so could there also be cases or have you heard of cases where maybe it's not somebody selling this on Facebook or another social media platform, but setting up what looks like a legitimate online pharmacy when really it's not? Absolutely. I mean, if you just do a Google search on the word Ozempic, you'll see what pops up. Um, I mean, the the bottom line is that there is a worldwide shortage. It's not just here in Canada. Um, And so that's why we want to remind people about how important it is that uh, when you are shopping online, especially when you're shopping period, that you you do make sure you're dealing with somebody that is reputable, uh, With especially when you're talking about medicine and drugs, um, that prescription is is so critical to protecting you um, and making sure you're dealing with someone who is purchasing within Canada as well as there to protect you as well. Because you you don't know if you get it, you don't know if it's coming from 
um, you know, the right place. Uh, Canada has different laws and rules than other countries. We have different labeling. Um, you want to make sure that you haven't gotten a counterfeit product. There's, there's so much risk here. And so it, it is beyond just the financial risk. It is really an important message for us to be sharing about um, prescriptions and purchasing online. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because when I first saw this too, even though uh, the woman was out, I think around $400 in this one case, yes, that's a big deal and it's it's not good that she was out that money, but uh, she might have also dodged something much, much worse. If Who knows what she was actually getting? And if you're going to start injecting yourself with something that you've purchased from someone through Facebook, that you have no idea about it. Absolutely. I mean, and and not to mention, you know, that there is a reason why you go to your doctor, you get a prescription, and then you go to a pharmacist, and the pharmacist uh, reviews your your medical history and checks to make sure that what you're about to be taking is going to be okay for your body. Um, That process is there to protect us. So if you're, you're going around the system, you're putting yourself at huge risk, even beyond what are you injecting in your body. And when you see people doing this, and not only with Ozempic, but with the popularity of that drug and scammers trying to cash in on that, are there other red flags? And I know you've touched on this, but if people are seeing things that they look like a very good deal or being asked to pay in different ways, are you seeing the same kind of red flags that you see with other scams? Absolutely. I mean, you know, first of all, if they have availability and this is something that's hard to get, but they've got a huge amount and they're offering it to you at a really low deal, a low price. I mean, that there is a red flag. Um, If they're asking you to pay beyond, um, you know, a credit card offers you some recourse if you don't get a product that you've you've ordered within a certain amount of time. So if they're asking you to pay around that through, you know, a prepaid debit card, you know, transfer of funds, a digital wallet app, like all of these types of ways, that should be another red flag. And then even when you're looking on the website, uh, if you don't see any signs of legitimate, um, you know, what a legitimate business would do. So, for example, they've got lots of information about their contact information, which then allows you to do your own research to see if this is a real address. Uh, They don't have a phone number for you to call. It's just an email address. Uh, the payment portal isn't secure. There's no lock, so they're not protecting your information um, or telling you how they're going to use your information. And then there's lots of typos or spelling mistakes, and it's a brand-new website. Those are all pretty big red flags. And again, the, thankfully, we haven't seen seen this or, see, or had reports of this happening specifically for Ozempic in any great numbers. But do you think it's likely there there are more people that have either fallen victim to this scam or or, or become close to I would say so. I mean, the shortages in, uh, you know, from what they're reporting is in, it's in effect till at least uh, the spring. So the opportunity is there um, and the websites are there. So, you know, we know that fraud is generally underreported. People are embarrassed or, um, you know, they, they just, you know, think to themselves it's a small amount of money. It's a good learning opportunity for me. Um, but the bottom line is we really want people to report it so we can help educate and inform. Well, it's a good warning and good to get that information out to people. Simone, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you. And of course, if people are seeing these, please feel free to report them to BAB.org. We have a great scan tracker tool that allows you to see what's happening live. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.